Good morning. Uh, it's so nice to be here with you all. Uh, really, really nice to be led in worship by Jenny and Bree, and to be led in the scripture by Shauna. Thank you so much. Um, and it's good to be with you all in this preaching series. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Blythe, and um, since Easter, our church has been asking in this preaching series how we might walk the road of being a third-way church together, how to hold difference in love, disagreeing on some things, but extending mutual embrace across that disagreement from our core shared place of God's love for all of us. And I have loved being in this series with you all. I've loved learning from Kathy and Scott and Nelson, but I so look forward to walking this road together when we can gather face to face. Because let's be honest, as much as it's nice and good to articulate third way postures, the third way is ultimately something that has to be lived, not just theorized. The early church knew this too. Today we're in the book of Acts, where we see Christ's first followers navigate difference in their community, that first community of Christ's followers. Sometimes I wonder if our world is losing the art of loving across difference, when difference was built into the early church's DNA. And that DNA is there because as the apostles left Jerusalem, the early church, which, which was once entirely Jewish, they met more and more people drawn to Jesus who were far from Jewish in practice and worldview. People who held lots of different histories and ideas than those of the apostles. And so today, in Acts 10, we get to hear about one of those encounters. So let's open up the text and see what happens. We are in Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. And the angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon, the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. 
They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we've come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man, one who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. And Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. This is the word of the Lord. We'll pause there and consider all this. Okay, so Luke, the author of Acts, he just introduced two main characters, Peter and Cornelius. Peter, you likely know, is one of the early church's main leaders, an apostle. He was one of Christ's closest friends and disciples and is Jewish in his cultural identity. And then we have Cornelius, a Gentile, meaning someone who is not Jewish. Cornelius is also a centurion, meaning that he works for Rome. Luke actually emphasizes this in the first verse, writing, in Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. Those first two words, in Caesarea, Caesarea just means Caesar's city. So right away, Luke is signaling we're in Roman territory. And this guy, he works for the empire. At the time, Rome was the dominant force occupying lots of land, including provinces like Judea and Samaria, and towns like Jerusalem and Nazareth. If you look at a first century map of the Mediterranean Sea, which is a pretty sizable sea, you know, it spans a few different continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. If you look at a map of the sea from this time, every shoreline is ruled by Rome. And Rome gained these lands, they gained these lands in the way any political force gained control at the time, through power and military dominance. So we have two men, one tied to empire and the other, Peter, from a people who'd unsuccessfully revolted against that empire and whose people did not choose this rule. And yet, I don't want to reduce their relationship to just that. In trying to understand the dynamic here, I find a woman named Roxanne Gay helpful. In an essay called Peculiar Benefits, Gay says that privilege, and here I might add power, privilege can change depending on context. So we might hold it in one area of life, but not in others. And I think we might see that in action here. Rome is the obvious political power, but then there's also the social and spiritual power of Peter, as he holds the, holds the keys to the kingdom, as it were, coming from a tradition that long believed Cornelius to be impure. So then, what happened for these two men here in this first half of the chapter? Well, first, worth noting, God initiates their encounter. They're coming together. Then Cornelius fetches Peter, he goes to him. Meanwhile, Peter has a vision where animals that Jews didn't eat, ones the law deemed unclean, they're shown to be okay for consumption. And this is huge for Peter. Until now, that meat was thought to defile a person, connected to big things like holiness and covenant. So this isn't something a Jewish person would just quickly abandon, even one who was following Christ at this time. It's so huge that Peter resists this vision at first. Surely not, Lord, he says, until the spirit reassures him three times. And while Peter is discerning this vision, Cornelius's men arrive. 
The Spirit assures Peter that they are indeed sent by God. So Peter invites them in. Peter would need the Spirit's assurance here. His and Cornelius's world was aggressively ordered, both socially and culturally. Strict boundary lines fell along Jew, Gentile, clean, unclean, Israel, Rome. And these divides were rarely civil. Remember how upset the religious leaders were with Jesus for dining with sinners? Close contact like that defiled a person. As one writer put it, when a Jew called a Gentile uncircumcised, they spat it. And on the other side, Gentiles saw Jews with disdain too often. They were either minor political opponents causing trouble with revolts, or else social outcasts in this predominantly Gentile world. So needless to say, there was a fair bit of contempt across these lines, not to mention a history of violence. It's normal to want to belong. We are wired for that. And my counselor's always reminding me this. Love, affection, belonging, every child and human needs these things. If we don't feel belonging in childhood, we go elsewhere to satisfy that unmet need. And it is beautiful to belong somewhere. But sometimes we take it a bit too far. Once we find where we belong, we can sometimes guard that space a bit too much, a bit too tightly. I've shared this next quote in a, pod, or in a sermon before, but it's so worth sharing again. It's from a podcast um, called The Sacred. And in this episode, the host of The Sacred asks Irish poet Padraig Otwama about the idea that sectarianism, which is highly attached groups removed from the surrounding world, she asks if sectarianism is just belonging gone wrong. Otwama's done lots of work on peace building in Ireland, and in response he says so wisely, well, belonging is the first word there, and we all wish to belong. But we need to be slightly wary of some forms of belonging to ask, are there barbed wires at the edges of my form of belonging? I love that quote. Sometimes in Peter and Cornelius's world, there were barbed wires lining how each group belonged to their own kind in relationship to the other. They were fenced off, self-protective, maybe sometimes had harsh edges towards each other. Centuries of conflict had sharpened this edge, which is why what happens in Acts is truly miraculous. So let's return to Acts 10. I will paraphrase a little bit, and then we'll jump right back into the text. First, in verse 23, which is where we'll start, Luke tells us that Peter went to Cornelius' house. Now Peter goes to him in Caesar's city, where a crowd of Gentiles are waiting. Verse 25. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. Then, upon meeting the crowd of Gentiles, Peter says in verse 28, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. I can't fathom the mutual humility and trust required from both parties to be in this moment together. They continue to talk, and Cornelius explains how God asked him to send Peter, or to send for Peter, rather. 
And then in verse 33, Cornelius says, Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord's commanded you to tell us. And so Peter speaks. I'm going to read from verses 34 to 48 if you want to follow along. Peter says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard this message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. This is the word of the Lord again. This is a watershed moment for the early church. The church extending herself beyond what's comfortable, heeding the pull of the spirit to widen in embrace to a people once deemed unclean. And in many ways, to embrace their political oppressor a little. Oof. And for Cornelius, a powerful man on the side of empire, to choose this seemingly powerless movement with a bunch of people he's used to ruling, this requires big humility and grace, and an orientation to something far beyond themselves. I'm not sure I can quite understand what it would be like. It's truly miraculous because it asks seeming enemies to profess an alternate allegiance than the one their world gives them. Both Cornelius and Peter, both Gentile and Jew, they have to rewrite the script that has shaped their perspective about the other. And it's only in encountering each other through the Spirit's leadership that they are able to do so. Our world isn't unlike theirs in a lot of ways. These communities were formed in the middle of harsh polarities, not unlike our own, aggressively ordered, often by anger towards the other. I don't think I have to convince you that our current moment is one where we see a lot of polarization. We just need to open any social media app, spend five minutes looking at some contentious topic, let's say vaccines, maybe microchips, how about side parts, and we would see this for ourselves. 
I came across a study by the Pew Research Center, which shows that where people used to be more evenly spread across a spectrum of political or ideological beliefs and perspectives, some falling here and here, maybe here and here, we're increasingly gravitating to the edges, far right, far left, crowding the outermost points and widening the gulf between each other. This isn't the problem, per se. I'm not remotely saying we all need to be middle-of-the-line centrists politically. Please don't hear that. But what is problematic to me is how this study showed the increased unlikelihood of having a real relationship across this widening divide, because we are increasingly afraid of the other. And as that fear festers, it hardens into walls barbed-wired walls, ensuring we won't share life with the other in a way that builds real relationship, in a way that cultivates all the things needed to make any relationship work, things like empathy and compassion for each other. But of course, you might actually encounter the other online. There's a phenomenon happening in our digital worlds that encourages this. You may know that algorithms play a key role in encouraging polarity, helping sharpen the barbed wires that can line our heart. Now, some of you work in tech, and you should probably be giving this part of the sermon. I genuinely think I might be cursed when it comes to technology, and I'm definitely no expert. But while I'm no expert, I did do some research on this, and here's what I understand about algorithms. Apologies if this reduces something very sophisticated, but an algorithm is just a coded set of instructions that completes a task. They can be totally innocuous or they can be genius, but in some digital contexts, like social media maybe, or digital marketing, algorithms can be coded to read how we use the internet and then generate content for us to engage. You and I, our actions, our behaviors, our keystrokes and clicks, that's all data for certain kinds of algorithms to interpret and respond to, and they do just that. This is what triggers Instagram follow suggestions or the ads that follow you online. They're what, suggest, uh, they're, they're what generates suggestions for articles we might, like, we might like. Now, I have figured out how to use these to my advantage. I'm in my early mid-30s with a small, wriggly child, and shopping sounds very tiring to me. So on my lazier days, you may find me alone on my couch during a nap, loudly speaking keywords into my phone in hopes that the right ad will then target me so my shopping will be done. <laughs> yeah, there's a theory that you don't even need to type it into Google anymore. You can just talk about it near your phone and they might figure it out for you. This is a theory I did test at some point in this pandemic. Last fall, three months into parenthood, I realized, oh, we actually do need a diaper bag. I'd resisted, it was futile, diapers were everywhere anytime I left the house. So in a moment of pure exhaustion, I said into my phone, I want a cool diaper bag that's not ugly, and waited for Instagram ads to bring it to me. <laughs> You might say that my search engine tactics need work, but no. The next day, I found it. I found the one. And it's got everything I asked for. It's cool. It's a diaper bag. It's not ugly. Point being, I get it. This is a helpful and seemingly innocent system at times. Until it isn't. 
Catherine Wu. Uh, she's a writer who writes for the PBS program Nova. She explains that the system is designed to keep users using. The longer you spend on the platform, the better the algorithm's doing, and the deeper down various rabbit holes it will take us. To encourage these rabbit holes, these algorithms slowly turn up the heat to keep us engaged with, as Wu says, fattier, saltier foods, or more radical content, whatever continues to elicit that primal response from us. From here, personalization can quickly shift into polarization. She explains it well, saying that obsessive dives into bird watching and presidential primaries may plumb the same depths, but the consequences don't exactly carry the same weight. In general, I don't think the companies that are in charge of this system care about its impact on our hearts. They mostly care about engagement, because the more time we spend on their site, the higher their revenue. In this way, I think some social media conglomerates behave a bit like empire. More clicks, more comments, more money, who cares? And what they've learned is that they can get top-notch engagement from us when we meet our polar opposite online. A journalist named Rani Mola explains that since sites like Facebook are calibrated to highlight posts that elicit reactions, whether good or bad, we see the most acerbic of opposing views, which can lead people to be even more repelled by them. So yeah, you might encounter the other side online, but it's the other in their worst, most extreme form. And it's so putrid to us that it ingrains us with a sense of identity and self based on who we are not, our sense of self postured over and against another person's, whole communities founded on antagonism. And I think a lot of this is happening on the empire's terms, not ours. I think this is opposite to the space created when people come together in mutual submission to God. I am not saying, get offline, go rural, become a Luddite. And I get the irony of discussing this in a sermon that's going to be on YouTube on Sunday morning. But I just want us to consider what's shaping us and to ask where we're directing our allegiance and to remember how it impacts our embodied relationships as the church, particularly as our church, a people wrestling with how to love across difference. And further, I want to suggest that our allegiance to one thing and our animosity for another isn't always as freely determined as we think. The internet is a powerful space run by powerful people, and on it our desires, including our desire to belong, are always being powerfully shaped. And this matters because I think it's shaping how we imagine and relate to the other in our world. Peter and Cornelius were shaped by powerful forces too. We can't deny the effect their social world had on them. And yet, in Acts 10, the spirit interrupts this force, offering something so much more compelling than the scripts their world gave them about each other. We all give something our allegiance. In Peter and Cornelius' world, most people's allegiance was directed to Rome, the empire, synonymous with political power. 
And even for Jews, in many ways, their hope was in the possibility of overthrowing Rome. That's what people thought the Messiah would do. They thought he'd take power back and topple those who had ruled over them. Everyone then, Jew or Gentile, was caught up in this struggle for power. And much like online, these allegiances ran on antagonism. Each sense of identity created by positioning their own sense of identity over and against the other. I am not you. An endless struggle for power to maintain it, to take it back. And by the time Jesus came, they were stuck in gridlock. When Peter shares the gospel with the Gentiles, he says in Acts 10:38, you know how God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power. And how we went around doing good, and how he, how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. Right there, you might have noticed the word power twice, and the words for power here are respectively in Greek, dunamē and katadunastiomenos, which is a mouthful for me. Both words translated here in NIV as power. But in Greek, those two words for power, while, while they do share a root, they actually have drastically different meanings. The power of the devil, that katadunastiomenos, is two words put together, down and rule. So it's the kind of power that overpowers people, pushing them down. It oppresses. Whereas on the other hand, Christ's power, duname, is best described as ability, or energy, marvelous works, abundance, or the, mirac the miraculous. And it's often used to describe Christ's healing miracles or some other expression of heavenly inbreaking. Here, Luke contrasts two forms of power, one that heals and liberates gods and one that oppresses. And as Peter says, it is Christ's good, good power that dissolves the other. But here, Luke shows, Christ's power is not power as we think of it in our world today. As one commentary phrased it, Christ's power is not the same flavor as Rome's. That's because Christ's power is revealed in the perplexing logic of the cross. Yes, the biblical tradition absolutely promises a confrontation with power. Any look at Isaiah or Mary's Magnificat or a lot of Christ's teaching affirms this. But thankfully, this confrontation is not on our terms. The confounding wisdom of Christ is that he frees us from the cycle of power struggles precisely by giving up power on the cross. I arrived at a place of being um, at peace with being a third-way church when I realized that our world, like the world of Acts, both runs on taking back power, on struggling against the other, or breaking down power so someone else might have it, which so often leads to violence. Instead, I think the cross frees us from bad power by exposing its emptiness. And this is done precisely by Christ laying down his life through sacrificial and self-emptying love. And through that humble self-emptying comes life for all. I 
think the freedom that the kingdom offers then is not one that brings its members more power, but one that frees us from needing to play power's game. I wonder what Peter and Cornelius were freed from in meeting Jesus. I wonder how the Spirit continued to lead them both into freedom from something, both healed and forgiven, both desperate for God's good power, which is mighty and healing for all. I do think that both Peter and Cornelius were freed from the logic of their strictly ordered social world. While they still probably held their social and cultural markers and identities, maybe their jobs as centurions, they were in so many ways freed from this old hold on their psyche and called into being a community who traded old scripts about each other for a new way of being together. A way that was free to be radically for each other. Free to say, Caesar is not Lord. We're not playing that game. The law is not Lord either. Our old judgments certainly aren't Lord. Jesus is Lord. And in his kingdom, we now realize God does not show favoritism, but accepts all. While Acts 10 is the first time Jew and Gentile become a worshiping community together, Jesus was laying groundwork groundwork for this years before. I like how Dan White Jr. puts it, saying, Jesus inhabited a polarized culture of Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, Herodians, Zealots, but he refused to play by their rank and file games. Instead, Jesus sits with the progressive, the Jameses and Johns who are zealous to see God's kingdom restored and justice rendered to marginalized, impoverished, oppressed, and occupied people. Jesus also sits and shares meals with the Matthews. Matthew was a tax collector who had cozied up to the Romans and was part of the occupying powers. When Jesus gathered the first core of disciples, there was an intentional disruption of the poles. And if it were not for Jesus holding space at the center, James and John would loathe Matthew and his ilk, and they would all naturally slide into the cultural ditch of mutual hatred for one another. I love that quote. If not for Jesus holding the space at the center, Peter and Cornelius couldn't transcend their social difference to profess allegiance to a way better kingdom. One where all difference is held in unity under Jesus as Lord. And from that place comes mutual embrace. I find this very convicting. I have my own ideas of people who are about people, rather, who think differently from me, people who vote differently from me. On my worst days, I feel like I am walking in the true light, and oh boy, that they need forgiveness more than me. Maybe you can relate to this. Through grace, I'm coming to see that my polar opposites need grace too. I'm coming to see them with more grace too. And I'm trying to remember the words of the late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who says that the challenge to the religious imagination is to see God's image in one who is not in our image. If not for Jesus holding space at the center, modeling self-emptying love, we will probably fail at this. I know I will. That's the beautiful thing about being a community centered around Jesus. We are centered on the God who is love and the God who goes first, love going first. 
So with that in mind, I want to end by reading one last scripture about the early church. From the early church, too, really. This one, written to a community in Corinth, experiencing sharp division, fighting over lots of ideas about how a Christian should be and worship. And to them, Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails.